Before I start teaching tonight, I want to let the online listening audience know that Facebook has determined that I am not eligible to use Facebook, and since the church's Facebook page was under my name, that account has been deleted as well. Now, the only reason they gave me for their decision via email was I was not following their community standards, and honestly, I have no idea what I did wrong or how I violated their policies. I don't put offensive things on Facebook, mostly outdoors, nature kind of things on my personal Facebook page and the church-related things on the church's page. I'm guessing it's because I was sharing Bible verses, sermon series titles, church events, and teaching outlines on the church's Facebook page, but that is only my guess. I had, had mentioned that Sunday afternoon I posted the Rest in Peace birthday cake, which I thought was hilarious, on my Facebook page. And Sunday evening I posted the scripture Isaiah 65, 24 from the sermon I preached Sunday morning. And then Monday morning I got the notification from Facebook. I tried to agree with their decision to no avail. I went from being suspended for 30 days to being ineligible for a Facebook account. I've said all this to say, if you would like a copy of the Wednesday night Bible study, outline that I like I've been posting on BCS Facebook page please email me at baselineag at aol.com requesting a copy and I will email that to you it will be in word format Microsoft Word so thank you for understanding so tonight we are talking about this the church in Smyrna the rich in spirit church turn to Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 I'm going to read this and then we're going to jump right in because as I mentioned, I would like to get through this church tonight. Only four verses I know, but there's a lot of material here. To the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of Christ, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Once again, four verses, four very powerful verses. Let me begin by reading a quote from Peter Marshall in his book, Their Blood Cries Out. He says this, and this has been a while back, there are some 200 million Christians worldwide undergoing some form of persecution. The U.S. State Department cites over 60 countries where Christians face the realities of massacre, rape, torture, mutilation, family division, harassment, imprisonment, and slavery, as well as discrimination in education and employment and even death, end quote. I think tonight I am correct in saying that most of the Western church knows very little about persecution and about suffering. For example, for us, persecution is having to sit in a church with air conditioning problems and having to endure for an hour with temperatures in the high 70s. For others, is speaking up in public debate, letting our Christian views be known, only to be ignored or labeled as one of those Bible-believing Christians. And for some of us, I'm afraid, persecution is having the pastor tell us that our pet conviction or ministry in the church is not going to be the tail that wags the whole dog, subsequently causing us to shake the dust off our feet as we exit this church in search of another you know, a true church. Now, to a large degree, we are, in the Western church, we are as spoiled as we are egocentric. We have not been beaten, we have not been tortured, or thrown into prison because of our religious beliefs. The closest we come to suffering as a Christian subculture is having some of our late-night comics make fun of our favorite televangelist. We somehow have the belief that should persecution threaten us, God will intervene and spare us. In other words, we tend to think that we in America and in the Western church are exempt from persecution. Why? Because we are God's favorites. That is, as such, we are immune to these atrocities. And yet when Jesus was asked about the signs of his second coming, he made it abundantly clear that certain things would befall all believers before his return to put uh, to the end of the age. These include tribulation, death, being hated by all nations for his name's sake. Therefore, I submit to you tonight as we begin to talk about Smyrna 
to listen to what the Holy Spirit said to this church in Smyrna because persecution certainly befell the believers there. And so there's a message, I believe, for all of us today. Let me first begin by going through some of the background of this city, as we did with Ephesus, we'll do with Smyrna and the other churches as well. Uh, first of all, ancient Smyrna is now a city in Turkey on the western side called Izmir, I-S-M-E-R, and has a population of over a million people. The city of ancient Smyrna is a place on top of a hill which now you can't even get into because they have it archaeologically uh, quandered off. It's a town some 35 miles north of Ephesus. And so as we think about these letters coming to the churches in Asia, Jesus is writing to them and making this circle. We'll start with Ephesus, we'll go to Smyrna, we'll go to Pergamum, we'll go to Thyatira and, and such. Uh, whenever, whenever the proconsul landed in his visit to Asia, he'd land, first of all, in Ephesus, and then from Ephesus he'd go to Smyrna. And so the letters of Christ are going in that same direction that we'll go through in, in, the, in the order that they are presented in our Bibles in Revelation 2 and 3. Now, in biblical days, Smyrna was a rival city of Ephesus. Both cities claimed to be the first city of Asia. Smyrna then had a little bit smaller population than Ephesus, about 200,000 people. It was a city that literally died for almost four centuries between 600 B.C. and 200 B.C. Then Alexander the Great planned to bring it back to life, and he did. He was successful in that. Now, after, the, after his, his death, the city was rebuilt, and it was one of the few cities of the ancient world that was known as what was called a planned city. The city was planned. Now, the Lord's description of himself to this church as the one who died and came to life is remarkably adapted to the historical nature of the town of Smyrna, which itself had an experience of death and then had come back to life, you know, ceasing to exist for 400 years. This town was known for its loyalty to Rome. Before Rome had established its position as a world power, Smyrna, uh, Smyrna citizens had sided with it against its enemies. In 195 BC, long before people elsewhere in the ancient world were paying tribute to Rome, this city had built a temple in honor of the Roman goddess Roma. In 26 AD, just a few years before the Christian message came to this town, this city had won the bidding against 10 other cities in Asia to build a temple in honor of the Roman emperor Tiberius. It was also known for its unvarying loyalty to Rome. The Christians there, on the flip side of that, were remarkable in their letter to, uh, remarkably in the letter, are to be commended for their unvarying, their unyielding loyalty to Christ. The city was also famous for its beauty in ancient days. It enjoyed a very picturesque setting before it lay the Aegean Sea. It was backed by the hill Pagos, P-A-G-O-S, some 500 feet tall. Uh, this town had a famous stadium, a library, and the largest public theater in Asia. Someone had described it this way, and I quote, If as rising out of the sea, the beautiful buildings, streets, and parks of the city rose up on the side of the Pagos Hill and came to an apex with the public buildings at its crest. The ancient writer likened Smyrna to a statue with a, with, with, a, with a crown on its head and the gold necklace about its neck. The necklace was the street of gold which, which encircled the city. As you look at the town, you saw its peak of public buildings which were like a crown. Then a golden street which ran around the circum, circum, circumference of the hill, making it appear as the hill wore a necklace. It is to this congregation in Smyrna that Jesus wrote, I will give you a crown as well. And so this city looked like a crown, gold necklace around it with the roads, but then he says, I'm giving you a crown. This city had a crown and was well known for its crown. The Lord says, hey, the crown that I'm going to give you is much more important. That's why I am mentioning the historical and the geographical details so we can see how the Lord uniquely adapts the situation of each town and applies it to the position of the saints in that place. The church at Smyrna was probably founded as a result of a missionary effort of Paul while he was in Ephesus, for Acts 19 tells us that the gospel spread throughout Asia. 
The letter which the Lord sends to the Smyrna church is the shortest of the seven letters, only four verses in our Bible, and is one of the two letters in which there is no condemnation to the church, the other one being Philadelphia. So only Smyrna and Philadelphia, he had nothing bad to say about them. He did not have to call them to repentance. At Ephesus, the opposition had sought to enter the church, but at Smyrna, it's very clear the opposition to the church is on the outside of the church. Keep in mind, as we go through this, that Smyrna was truly a persecuted church. Now, that being said, looking at your outline, we have three points to make. We're going to look at his character, the character of Christ, his commendation, and, and, and then his counsel, his exhortation. This is the basic outline that we are following for all the churches. The only thing missing on this outline then is his condemnation because there is none. So let's look at his character. In his letter, Jesus introduces himself to these suffering saints as the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, verse 8, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. First of all, his character. Two things. He is the first and the last. It is an especially appropriate greeting to these Christians who lived in a city that claimed to be first. Now, there is a Lord who stands as first and preeminent above every claim of a city or an empire or of a person. And especially appropriate that his greeting of first and last comes to Christians who are courting martyrdom because they were being reminded by the Lord himself, do not fear death, it is not the last, I am the last. In Revelation 2.8, not only was he the first and last, but he was the one who died and came to life again appropriate to a town that had died and come back to life. Now, when we describe a person practically, the last thing that can be said of that person is that they died. Abraham Lincoln, for example. You don't say he died and then he lived. You say he lived and then he died. That's the natural order of things. That's the correct order. But, that's, but there's one unique person in all of history that absolutely flips that order. He became dead and lived. All right? The last thing that is said about Jesus is, that, is not that he died. The last thing that is said about Jesus is that he lived. Of course, he goes on living, but Jesus wants to so identify the certainty of his resurrection that he puts his living in the past tense. It's in the past tense here. He lived, that means an act which happened, the results of which are forever established. He lived. But when you go back to Revelation 1.18, he said this in the present tense, I am the living one. I was dead, past tense, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. So it establishes not only he lived, but he lives even today. And he now holds, Revelation 1.18, he holds the keys of death and Hades. Now, what a beautiful and appropriate description for the suffering and persecuted Christians in Smyrna. That if they are called upon to die for Christ, it is not the last word that will be said about them. I love that. They will join their Lord, the one who died and lived, and even today, 118, lives. And thank God that not only applies to Smyrna, that applies to all believers, followers of Jesus Christ. Friends, let me tell you, the devil does not have the last word to say about us. He is not going to be able to say of you or of me as the final word, you died. The final word is, he lived, she lived, all right? The last word is God's, he lived, because he alone has the power to bring life. Because he lives, I too shall live. That's the character, point one. That's the character of the Lord represented to this church. Let's then look at number two, his, con his commendation. His commendation, not condemnation, his commendation. Verse 9, I know, there's three of them, I know your afflictions, that's one, your tribulation, and your poverty, number two, yet you are rich. I know the slander or the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The New King James says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews but are, and are not, 
but are a synagogue of Satan. And so Jesus brings a beautiful commendation to this church, really three words of approval. The first thing he says to this church in Smyrna is, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. As he reflects on the nature of what is being experienced by the Christians in this town at that church. He is saying, church, you are simply filling up with what the world is dishing out to me. He's saying the world is at enmity with me. It will always be opposed to me. It will always ridicule you. It will never quite accept you. In some cases, the acceptance will be far from less than in other places. But he says, I know what you're going through. Now, this fact, this fact that his church is going through tribulation, then leads us then to a conclusion that one of the things that these letters of Christ do for us and say to us is that it does away with a religious faith or a faith in Christ which some call easy believism or escapism. As in, hey, when the going gets tough, the Lord's going to vaporize you out of the situation and press the right button and help you escape, then poof, everything's okay. Uh, yes, he does, with the way of suffering, provide a path of escape, but the escape might not always be the one we've envisioned. The way of escape for them, as we're going to see in a few minutes here, was that by death. All right? And so tribulation, persecution, suffering is what this church in Smyrna is going through. And tribulation or pressure is a part of the Christian experience, something not taught on today very much or preached on today very much, but we will all go through trials and tribulation and persecution. Also note here that Jesus never condemns their faith. Imagine today sending one of our Christian leaders to report on this particular church. I mean, one who has bought in the notion that God only wants to bless you with the good things of this world, you know, the gospel of health and wealth and prosperity. There is no question in my mind that these poor believers would be severely criticized for their lack of faith today. Not only regarding the way the enemy was kicking around, kicking them around, but also for their poverty. This is why I believe we need to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church in Smyrna, as well as Ephesus and ongoing to the five other churches. Because really, we have no theology uh, regarding suffering or persecution today. We don't want to hear that kind of thing. Now, here in the West, we are apt to look at a situation in which we are relatively free of religious persecution, and we come to some wrong conclusions. First of all, we interpret even today, pay attention, America, we interpret the absence of persecution as if this is to be our permanent state. Church, just because we're not being persecuted now doesn't mean that persecution's not coming. This is a big mistake for which we could well pay dearly in the long run. The psalmist makes it clear in Psalm chapter 2 that the nations are going to be in an uproar along with their kings and rulers. Together, they are going to arise against the Lord and His people, saying in Psalm 2-3, Let us tear their fetters apart. Let's cast away their cords from us. Fetters and cords are things that restrain and hold things together. Church, the world hates the restraining influence of God's people. The world insists it desires freedom so that everyone can do what is right in his or her own eyes without being told this is what God's word says, this is what the Bible says, this is right or this is wrong. The world's longing to rid itself of the, of the church's light in order to give free reign to deeds of darkness. Therefore, I believe the Holy Spirit is still speaking to the church today as a whole, reminding us, even today, to prepare ourselves for persecution as we engage in the cultural wars we must be as the church. We must be engaged in the church. I gave you an article on the handout back there, and it's called, If You Are a Christian Leader, You Should Have a Target on Your Back. I read this two weeks ago from Dr. Michael Brown. Please pick that up and read it on your own time. Uh, number two. This church not only shares tribulation, but it also shares in poverty. In the Greek language, there are two words which can be used for poverty. One word which can be used is that of a college student. A college student might be poor, but they're not destitute. There's another word in the Greek language for poverty that is perhaps better translated here is the word destitute. It describes a person who is literally without. And unless someone comes to their aid, they may perish and perish very quickly. 
it is that word which is used here of the church in Smyrna. Not the poverty which is based on prevailing minimum wage, but the poverty which is based on absolute destitution. Jesus says, I know your poverty, but then he turns right around and gives four words that make all the difference, but you are rich. But you are rich, yet you are rich. I'm guessing that nobody else ever would have drawn that conclusion about the believers in Smyrna. What Christ is seeing and revealing to us is that for these believers, riches have nothing to do with owning stocks or bonds or CDs or mutual funds. Riches had everything to do, though, with possessing spiritual character. Here's a lesson we shouldn't miss. Only under pressure are we reminded of what is of real lasting value, that is, and that is that of the Spirit. And it's no coincidence that under pressure is the real fragrance of Christ, the spiritual character that is released from within us, made manifest. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and I quote, God's great concern for us primarily is not our happiness, but our holiness. See, this is a real contrast between Smyrna then, and now as we get to in Revelation 3, that of the Laodicean church. At Laodicea, and I think they probably had a group within it that taught, hey, if you believe in the Lord, you can be wealthy. We have a pastor in this town who wrote a book that God wants you to be a millionaire. I have no problem if, you want, if God wants you to be a millionaire, he'll do that. That's not a problem. But I would never write that book, all right, based on what I even read here. Uh, the church evidently had a good deal of affluence in Laodicea. So the Lord says to that church that is rich and knows it's rich, who said even of themselves, we have need of nothing. He says, don't you know that you're wretched and pitiful and blind and poor and naked? That's not Smyrna. Smyrna had need of everything. But what a contrast between Smyrna and Laodicea. Laodicea says, I have need of nothing, and yet Jesus says, you need everything. Whereas Smyrna, which physically needs everything, and the Lord says, hey, but you're rich. So we have to understand the way God sees things and the way we see things are diametrically opposed. Now, you can't judge by outward appearances where a person is with God, and you can't use a monetary sign. You can't judge by the externals of a person. You cannot say that outwardly adversity is a sign that God has withdrawn his favor. You cannot say that outwardly adversity is a proof of spiritual weakness. So here's a church which outwardly doesn't have it together. Matter of fact, they cannot send missionaries to the four corners of the earth. They themselves don't have enough food to, uh, food to feed themselves, let alone others, and so they're poor, they're destitute, but the Lord says, you are poor, but yet you're rich. I see your poverty. I know your poverty, but you are rich. Number two. Number three, the third thing in which the Lord knows about this church and it commends them for is that they have endured blasphemy or slander. Blasphemy or slander. Now, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, we know from the book of Acts, one of the chief sources of opposition to the early church and the early Christians was the Jewish community. All right, opposition to Jesus would never come from the true, ch true children of Abraham, the children of faith. It would only come, as Jesus says, from those who are the sons of the devil. The synagogue of, C of, of Smyrna, as well as other synagogues, like to see itself as the assembly of the Lord, modeled after the experience of Israel in the wilderness. This, re this reference is in Numbers. And yet Jesus here simply notes their true identity is not the assembly of the Lord, it's the synagogue of Satan. There are people today who believe they are of the Lord, doing the Lord's work, and yet they are of the synagogue of Satan. And so the Lord does not tell Smyrna to do anything about it. He just simply notes the presence of the fact that they have been slandered, blasphemed by the community. But he also says, he doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, by the way, slander him back. He doesn't say that at all. He just, he just notes it. Jesus simply says to this church, in the midst of its tribulation, of its poverty, of its slander, he says, I know. 
And when the Lord says, I know, it's not simply an intellectual, I know this is going on because I got the report on the paper. No, it's an I know because based on my own experience and what I've gone through, I know what you're going through. He himself has passed through tribulation and poverty. He became poor, Corinthians says, in order that we might be rich, speaking of spiritual riches. He knows what it's like to be mocked and ridiculed and slandered. He knows every day that what it's like to have his name taken in vain. I mean, every day, even in America, on TV, his name is blasphemed over and over again. It's slandered. So he knows what it is when his people are slandered for the sake of identification with him and with his name. That, therefore, church, we shouldn't be surprised when we see persons who try to take a stand for the gospel who are slandered in our and by our society. Uh, slander is still part of the enemy's weapon against the church to try to paint it ideologically so that his body becomes known as a bunch of narrow-minded bigots. That's all you Christians are. We hear that. You see the ads on, <laughs> on TV right now for the candidates and stuff. You know, and it's like, okay, there's things that uh, Blake Masters says, like, yeah, I agree with that, but they're using it as a negative to, to, to ridicule and to mock him. Slander. Jesus says, I know. I know what it's like, he says, to be slandered. And so he commends this church for their tribulation, for their poverty, and for their blasphemy, their slander. Let's look then at the third point, his counsel. He gives the church some counsel in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. There is no condemnation, as I mentioned to begin with, and there is therefore no correction. Only, there's only counsel. He says, don't fear. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. It's like, Lord, you got this right? More suffering? Lord, that's the answer to our problems? We've gone through enough. We've got tribulation. We've got poverty. We've got slander. And you're saying, do not fear what you're about to suffer? God, it's time to take the pressure off, not put more pressure on us. And he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. How many of you have ever gone through in your life, don't raise your hands, you've gone through a rough time, and you think you're on top of it, before you know it, man, you're, you're deeper than when you, when you were before. It's like, I don't know if I'm ever going to see daylight here. And just one thing after another, this is what's happened in Smyrna. It's like the Lord obviously has not taken some of the helpful seminars that are offered by churches today which tell us to how to get out of our adversity, you know. The Lord doesn't assure this church that their sufferings are at an end. As a matter of fact, he says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. The devil wasn't going to come up out of hell and literally materialize and throw them into prison. He was going to, however, use people to do that, all right? It was a Roman proconsul. It was a mob of people who were against the Christians in this town of Smyrna. But the Lord has perception and says, it's not human hands doing it, it's the devil. The devil is behind it all. That's why, honestly, that we as Christians take the viewpoint that behind evil is the devil. Devil spelled D-E-V-I-L. Take away the D, you got evil. Take away the E, you got vile. That's who he is. You take away the V, you got ill. He is a sick guy. You take away the D-I-V-I, and you got L, and that's where he's going to spend eternity. Right in the pit of L. All right. I've had a difficult time praising God for everything because there are a lot of things, honestly, that are of the devil. I don't have a difficult time, however, praising God in everything. The preposition makes a lot of difference. In other words, if you praise God for everything, you might be praising God for some of the things that Satan is, is responsible for. But if you praise God in everything, you can say God's going to work this out for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Preached on it two weeks ago. So God's not going to let the devil defeat us in that area. The devil, he says, is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. The name Satan means accuser and adversary. The name devil means deceiver. Both phases of his personality are at work in the church in Smyrna. They were going to be thrown into prison. Now, in those times, prison was not a place of detention where one served a term and you had three square meals a day and you had an exercise room and TVs in the wall, whatever. It was a place waiting trial. For Christians, it simply meant if you're sent to prison, you are being sent there and being prepared to die for your faith. From Satan's point of view, he has come to tempt 
the Christians. From God's point of view, though, the believers at Smyrna have come to be tested. And there's a difference between temptation and testing. Temptation is designed to make you fall. Testing is there to prove your strength. And Jesus says they're going to be thrown into prison to test them. For how long? For 10 days. Now, is this a literal 10 days? We don't know for sure. Is it a literal 10-day, 24-hour period kind of day, whatever? We don't know. We'll look later at the Antichrist and see that the seven heads doesn't mean that he has seven literal heads. It's a term probably here meaning a short period of time, as in Daniel chapter 1, verse 12. Test your servants for 10 days, Daniel tells them. And so 10 in Scripture is often a time of testing. We talked about that even with tithing and different things. That, 10 virgins, you know, 5 prepared, 5 not, whatever. We've gone through that before. So here are the believers at Smyrna faced with impending persecution. And the Lord has knowledge of it. And the Lord says, don't be afraid of more suffering. Don't be afraid of this. Do not fear. He's saying to them, you guys, you got it bad enough, bad enough right now. Don't add fear to that. Be assured, he is telling them, I am the first and the last. And the Lord says, be faithful, be faithful unto death. So the first counsel, do not fear. More suffering is coming. Second one, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Become, literally the word is, become faithful unto death. And the idea behind that language is that according to the level of your testing, the Lord will give you, the Lord's going to give you strength to go through that test. And you can say, well, I don't think I could ever, you know, be ready to be martyred at, 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 in a stadium. And I'm not sure I could ever have that much faith, you know. And, and so really, think of it this way. This become faithful unto death says that when you get there, you will have what you need at the right time. You might say, I don't have that right now. That's okay. When you face that situation, when you face that circumstance, God's going to give you the grace you need to face what you need to face at that moment. It's striking to me that the Lord offers them no earthly solution to the problem of these saints at Smyrna. He does not promise to take away their difficulties. He does not promise to somehow magically materialize and answer their needs. His promise to this church, as it is many times to his believers who are going through similar situations, he simply promises us and reminds us of our eternal reward with him. So the Lord says to this church, I'm not going to try to explain to you on earth all your sufferings. I simply hold before you the fact that you have a crown of life. Be faithful. Be faithful. He's saying to Smyrna, you see the city with a crown? He says, and every Smyrna would look up and say, man, that is so beautiful. The, the buildings and, the, and the, road, the gold road and everything else, the hill of Pegos and all the public buildings on top and that beautiful crown of the city. He says, don't, don't look at that, he says. I'm going to give you a better crown than that. It's the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. Be thou faithful unto death. You see, it's impossible. It's impossible to miss what he's saying here. Now, the word for crown, there's two words used. One is diadem, which is the kind of like the crown that the late Queen Elizabeth would wear. It signified royalty and dignity and sovereignty. The other word is the word stephanos. S-T-E-F-A-N-O-S, from Stephen's name, which is taken from that, is simply a laurel wreath which was given to a person who had won a race and somebody wore, or somebody wore at a banquet or a wedding. It stood for festal joy. And so what the Lord is saying here to these believers is that there is a reward for those who conquer. It's a crown of life. Don't fear, he says, what they can do to you by death because I have life in my hand. Don't forget, I was dead, but I am alive. I am the living one. And so he gives this challenge to the church at Smyrna. He challenges them to hear. This is the third thing. Let them that, that have an ear, let him hear. So first of all is, number one, do not fear. There's more suffering to come, but be thou faithful unto death because I have a crown of life for you. Thirdly, his counsel is, hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. Now, there's a temptation for all of us when we're going through problems to simply say, God, I'm not sure about this, and we try to listen to other voices. We want an easy solution. We don't want to hear what he has to say. And, or, or, or we ask, God, God, why is this happening, or why is that happening? We don't pause long enough many times in our suffering, in our persecution, to hear his voice that tells us, rest in me, it's going to be okay, trust me, be faithful. And so the Lord is telling his church, and even us today, hear what I'm saying to you. 
That was the third challenge, the, th the third counsel. The fourth counsel is this. The fourth counsel is to conquer or to overcome. Jesus says that if people don't cry out to him and praise him, the rocks will. Well, our part in conquering is to cheer, is to keep cheering even if people try to tell us it really didn't happen or deny your faith or cheer for somebody else. We say, no, we're going we're gonna to keep on cheering for Jesus because our whole life is a cheer and agreement as a witness that we have his life. I am going to identify with him no matter what. I'm not going to go the way of the world. And so that's the way we conquer. Not through some human you know, effort, whatever, our self-effort. We're not super men, super boys, super girls, super women, men, or whatever. We are simply believers who have been linked up with Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, He who conquers, overcomes, shall not be hurt. They shall in no way, one translation says, be injured. Now he promises on the fact that you won't be harmed by the second death. The first death is the death that has to do with the body. The second death has to do with the soul. And what, he, what the Lord is saying here is beyond the first death is the second death. But if you come into fellowship with me, you'll never face the destruction of your soul. You will not be injured by the second death, literally meaning the lake of fire. We don't have to be afraid, church, of the lake of fire because he is our conquering hero. He is our king of kings and lord of lords. Now, at the time of this writing, I'm going to read this to you. At the time of writing this letter, it was about AD 95, 95 AD. There was a young man in this church in Smyrna. And you can, you can look this up and you can find it as well. A disciple of John whose name was Polycarp. How many have ever heard of Polycarp? He became the pastor of this church. And, and we know that in the year 155 AD, some 60 years after this letter was sent to the church, that Polycarp, now an old man in his 80s, was put to death in the stadium at Smyrna for his faith in Jesus Christ. We have preserved in historical record the encounter at Smyrna and the Roman proconsul as the persecutors came to get Polycarp. He has an, this incredible change with the Roman council. He is the one who has heard the word from the Lord himself from this letter, Become thou faithful unto death. Well, the Roman proconsul in the stadium says, have respect to thine age. According to the customary form, the proconsul asked him to do certain things, like swear by the genius of Caesar, a traditional oath taken to demonstrate loyalty to Caesar as God. Repent, they would tell Polycarp. Say away with the atheists, because back then, that's what the Christians were called. They were called atheists because they didn't believe in all their gods. And so the Christians were called atheists. Polycarp did this incredible thing. I love this. Polycarp looked with severe countenance on the mob of lawless heathen in the stadium, and he waved his hand at them, and he looked up to heaven, and he said, Away with the atheists, speaking of them, meaning them. But the proconsul urged him, Swear, and I will release these. Curse the Christ. And Polycarp said, and I quote, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Speaking of Christ. Now, this is the proconsul. I have wild beasts. If you, if you repent not, I will throw you to them. And Polycarp said, Send them for repentance from better to worse is not a change permitted us, but to change from cruelty to righteousness is a noble thing. Then said the proconsul again, If thou dost despise the wild beast, I will make thee to be consumed by fire, if thou repent not. And Polycarp answered, Thou threatens the fire that burns for an hour and is in a little while quenched. Thou knowest not the fire of the judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly, meaning them. Why, thou, why delayest thou? Bring what thou wilt. And when they went to tie Polycarp to the stake, he said this, You do not need to bind me to the stake. I will stay there myself. And they bound him loosely. What an incredible personal fulfillment to a young man who heard this letter being read to the church in Smyrna at the time it was written. You see, we're dealing with martyrs. We're dealing with the phrase, Be thou faithful unto death. See, martyrdom might not be facing us right now in America, 
and the candidates wanting to get elected next month are not campaigning on the theme that they're going to kill Christians. So honestly, we're relatively safe from martyrdom here for now. But it's not so. For, and it's not so safe for Christians in other countries. Now, how does this relate to us, be thou faithful unto death? Well, ask yourself tonight, what is the one thing in my life which could keep me from being faithful to Christ? Am I willing to be faithful unto death? I mean, am I willing, if called upon, to lay down my life as a martyr for the God that I choose to serve? Will I serve him even if it costs me everything? See, we hear so many voices about today about success and prosperity and well-being in an air-conditioned life, so to speak. But here's this word coming to us saying, if all of that is taken from you, are you willing to suffer even if he doesn't give you an explanation for it? Will you be loyal to Jesus Christ? Will you be faithful to Christ? Because that's what the Lord is asking. He doesn't ask the same thing of everyone. There are different words, as we know, to different churches. But from each of his words, we apply to our life what fits. What fits you. In Luke chapter 22, watch my time here, Jesus tells us of Peter's sifting and some work that needs to be done in Peter's spirit. This is a contemporary version of it so we can enter the story for ourselves. Peter comes out for breakfast early one morning to find Jesus all alone. Peter asks the Lord, uh, Lord, did you hear someone knocking very early this morning before the sunrise? Jesus says, well, yes, I did. I was up praying before daybreak and I heard the knocking. Peter asks, well, Lord, who is knocking? Jesus says, well, this may surprise you, Peter, but it was the devil. The devil, Peter exclaims, come on, Lord, don't joke with me like that. Jesus replies, well, I'm not joking, I'm telling you the truth. Peter asks in astonishment, Lord, what do you want? Well, actually, Peter, he came to talk to me about you, said Jesus. Oh, I get it, Peter says, and as he smiles, this is a joke, isn't it? No, said Jesus, it's no joke. He came to ask permission to sift your soul the way, the way that wheat is sifted. Peter startles uh, thinking of, of the violent threshing motion he used to separate the good kernels of wheat from the useless stem. Well, if that's the case, Lord, am I ever glad you answered the door? By, by the way, what'd you tell him? Oh, I told him, go ahead, you have my permission. You what? I gave him my permission, Peter, and I did it because I know that ultimately it won't destroy your faith. I know that in the outcome, it will make you a seasoned man of God. For only when the useless chaff is taken out of your life will you be able to help others. And by the way, Peter, I know that you will not be destroyed and that your faith won't fail because I myself will be praying for you the whole time you are being sifted. Now, that's a modern-day version, of course, but most of us, dare, I dare say, don't know this Jesus because the Jesus that we have created in our minds is the one who is ever ready to keep us from experiencing problems. The one who wants to shower us continually with material blessings we long for because we have created a mental idol, an imposter, a false Jesus who wants us happy at all costs. Friends, this is not the Jesus who is speaking to the suffering saints in Smyrna. Here we find the true Jesus, well aware of their present circumstances, also well aware that a fiery furnace of affliction is coming their way. And Jesus tells them, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is going to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Notice the Lord doesn't promise to intervene and deliver them from the clutches of their circumstances. Rather, he warns them that in the crucible of testing, that, that the fire is about ready to be turned up and it's going to get hotter. The devil, he says, is going to have them imprisoned and they're going to undergo a period of tribulation and for some of them even resulting in death. Like Peter, like each of us, the church people at Smyrna must, undergoing, must undergo sifting. See, this very concept of being tried and tested so we might learn how to let go of worldliness is not the clause we noticed when we accepted the good news of the gospel, which raises the question, which version of the gospel, the good news, did we hear and accept? 
Was it the whole true message that Jesus delivered? Or was it the heavily edited one of the Western church culture offered to us to buy into, you know, church membership? You know, how to make sure that your fire insurance is intact. The gospel of Jesus Christ, when declared in its entirety, it plainly tells us that the only way to the enter the, enter the kingdom of God is through the doorway of suffering and letting go of self and self's agenda. But I'm afraid that this spiritual principle is so repulsive to most of us Westerners that we conveniently detour our way around it, seeking to avoid suffering at all costs. In its place, we substitute our own gospel of health, wealth, and pleasure. You see, that's why I'm saying, if we ignore this letter to the church at Smyrna and what it's saying to all of us even today, we do so at great peril to our souls. If we do so, we rob the message of the gospel of its true power in our lives. The church at Smyrna, poor, persecuted, and headed for even more persecution, is one of the few churches that had no need of repentance. There's no word of condemnation here, just encouragement to remain faithful unto death. <clears throat> Jesus has the same words of encouragement for each of us as we suffer persecution and also as we struggle against the force within that resists dying the spiritual death to ourselves. And we each must die. We must die daily if we're going to enter into the life, the kingdom of God that he has for us. So my question is, what appeals to you more? The contemporary gospel of blessing or what Jesus has to say to the church at Smyrna? What appeals to your taste? And then really, can you trust your taste? Oftentimes as a pastor, I feel as if I'm trying to speak to a generation that doesn't want to hear this kind of message. And at times my heart aches because of the widespread belief that somehow if we can only take hold of God, and find some bottom line principle by which God wants us to live, we can arrive at some Christian nirvana. Nothing's going to be asked of us. We'll be at leisure, and we'll simply drink in the cool, refreshing waters of his presence. While this type of preaching generates great excitement and at times draws great crowds, it's a far cry from what the scriptures teach. Oftentimes, it is through the experience of suffering that we discover the presence of God with us. After all, it was John who was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos as, I quote, a fellow partaker in the tribulation, Revelation 1-9, that received this amazing revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, in the end, a gospel that denies or ignores God's purpose in our suffering is not the true gospel, but one of our own invention. Church, it's time that we value what he values. Because ultimately, the letter to the Smyrnans gives us one more aspect of the spiritual character that Christ values in his people and in his church. What is God after? He's after faithfulness. Faithfulness is the cardinal virtue for which the church at Smyrna is commended. I want to close tonight. I'm skipping a few things because of time. But I want to close tonight by reading to you an article on the persecuted church taken from Christianity Today. This was published October 25, 1999. To the angel of the church of the despised, incarcerated, separated, raped, and martyred, the persecuted church, these are the words of him who knows your patient endurance, understands your distress, and like you has been faithful to the shedding of blood. You say you are isolated, cut off, that no one acknowledges your state. I see the terrors you face, the raids of your houses, of your house churches in Laos, Indonesia, and China, the assault and murder of your leadership in Iran and India and Chechnya, the indiscriminate bombing and enslavement that ravaged your villages in Sudan. I register every tear that is cried, record each longing conceived, hear each desperate plea confessed. I identify intimately with your plight. I have not forgotten you nor have many others who, although unfamiliar with the gravity of your suffering, draw hope and strength from your noble sacrifices for me. I have revealed your plight to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and I've called thousands of churches to pray for you and to serve you. 
Beware of those who come from outside your fellowship who masquerade as teachers of the church but elevate personal comfort over godly obedience. Many travel from long distances and present themselves as spiritual masters of the faith, proclaiming that temporal health and security are your due. Do not listen to them. Theirs is a false teaching, only shackling you to the unrequited masters of greed and disquiet. In the midst of your suffering, I will prove to be your true peace and your anchor. I delight in your resourcefulness with little, your dignity on suffering, your joyful endurance in the midst of adversity. It is these things that give witness to a power above all earthly kingdoms, a source of strength stronger than the might of any human power. Remain faithful, and I will raise you up in victory. Patiently endure, for I will not tarry long. Let's pray. Father, tonight, as we consider the church in Smyrna, Lord, our mind recreates the scenes of those Christians being walked into the stadiums in Smyrna on various occasions to give their life to the lions, to be burned at the stake with a fire. We hear the wild cheering mob surrounding them to see the display. Father, tonight we hear a 10-year-old boy asking his father, will the lions hurt daddy? We think of those who follow you in these profound ways. Father, your church is flecked and starred with these who have gone all the way to death for you. It makes us look today at our walk and our willingness to walk with you on the path which you have called us to. Lord, hearing your voice, reading your word, we want to take upon ourselves the cross and the responsibilities associated with the cross. The cross meaning only thing, that of dying. Dying to ourselves, dying to our agenda. God, we want to be faithful unto you, unto death. God, we desire to serve you, not simply out of self-interest, not for what you can do for us, but we desire to serve you because you are Lord and you are God and there is no other. Lord, you are the first and the last. You have died and you have lived and you live today and we praise your name forever. And I ask tonight that you would search our hearts in areas where we are unwilling to be faithful, that we might be faithful unto you in all things, even unto death, if called upon. We ask this now in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in your name, amen. Amen. May God give us all ears to hear what Holy Spirit says to the church, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Next week, I will not be here. Mom Jan's going to be teaching next couple of Wednesdays, and we'll see how I'm doing after my knee surgery. But she has taught on this more than me. <laughs> so she's a, she's a biblical scholar in Revelation, I think. So mom's going to be teaching on that. Take this home, read it. Read this when you get home. And uh, hopefully you'll re read uh, Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And say, Lord, help, help me to be faithful unto you no matter what. Amen. God bless you all.